This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Brunwyn Milkins. Hey, mental workers, and welcome back to the podcast. Have you ever been in therapy and you are an early career psychologist? Well, myself and our guest today, we have both been in therapy and today we are going to be unpacking the world of therapists receiving therapy. We've got friend of the podcast, Carly Doba, returning to us. Hi, Carly. Hello. Thank you for having me back. No worries. Thank you so much for coming back on. Carly is a psychologist and director with the Australian Association of Psychologists Incorporated, and we are delighted to have you. I'm very excited to be talking about this. Excellent. This episode is going to be a little bit different. So in the past, it's been more of an interview with Carly, but I'm going to do a more you can't ask that type style of things. You know, the ABC show where they get up the questions and then they answer it. We don't have five other people. It's just me and Carly, but hopefully we should be able to do this topic justice. The overview that I want to give is Carly and I have a bunch of questions related to therapy experiences, and we're going to be talking about it using our own personal and professional experiences. Sound good, Carly? I cannot wait. Excellent. I think the first thing I want to do is we want to answer this question. So imagine that we've picked up the card in front of us, Carly, and it says, Mm -hmm. what was your experience like with therapy? I'll let you go with this. And both Carly and I have a few experiences to draw on, but I'll let Carly go first. This is where I look at the card, then I look at you, then we both laugh together. (laughs) (laughs) My experiences have been a mixed bag, as I guess would be with any kind of health professional. I've had really positive ones and I've never had negative ones, but I've had experiences where I haven't felt the need to go back. But my goals and things that I would have liked to get were unattainable in the moment. Okay. And we were talking off air beforehand, but you've had a mixed bag of therapies like you just alluded to. Can you tell us the different types of therapies that you have participated in just briefly? Definitely a mixed bag. So I am in my early 30s and I think my first foray into receiving support for mental health was when I was 10 years old and it was needed, but it probably wasn't the style that I um, would have benefited from. So I assume at that time, although I wasn't really sure, I assume it was CBT. And then when I was a couple of years older, I participated in family therapy. And then a couple of years after that, maybe when I was about 19 or 20, I had hypnotherapy. And then maybe five years after that, I think I had CBT again, although it wasn't really explained to me. And then about five years ago, I had EMDR. Interesting. And was... It positive or negative? I'm curious just about all of those things. Was hypnotherapy, family therapy, positive, negative, helpful, unhelpful? Big question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the first incidence of CBT as a young person, not helpful. Mm. Um, I think that's just because the I'm lovely psychologist, lovely person, but I think she came in thinking it was one thing when it was certainly something else. So I didn't feel the need to talk to her again. A family therapy would have been helpful, but um, the time, um, the environment, the situation, it just was not tenable. Hypnotherapy was incredible, and I went in very sceptical. I 
loved the person who I participated in that, but well, loved professionally, like as a person, yeah. not romantic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Admitting that something else, fun- Carly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was phenomenal and I didn't anticipate it. It was very, very profound and freeing for me, which I did not expect. And CBT years later was also really helpful. Um, was paired with a really knowledgeable, client-centered psychologist. She was phenomenal. And then EMDR just rocked my world. That's very, awesome. Very, positive. So yeah. did I hear you say that a later experience with CBT was helpful? Is that right? That's right. And I think, and I'm curious, and I'll never really know. I mm. wonder if that's because I was older and had been around the block a few more times and thought I need some support. Um, I was a bit more independent at that time, so things had changed as well. And also she was able to pick symptoms that I'd probably been living with for the worst side of 15 years and that was, I was ready to hear it and it was also very helpful as well at the time. That's really interesting. I find that really a really good point that we could have different experiences of therapy depending on stages in our career and lives. That's really interesting. Okay, I'm going to pick up the card and answer from my experiences now. Is that okay? (laughs) Please do. So I've had many therapy experiences and I actually just jotted down an extra one because I'd completely forgotten. And my therapy experiences, my first one was when I was about 16 and that was at my university counsellor. I loved my practitioner. She was amazing. I still remember her name, Michelle. I'm not outing her because I don't know her surname, but I always think Michelle was so wonderful and helpful. I then had later therapy experiences and they were more or less helpful. I remember getting CBT. I didn't know what it was. It wasn't explained to me. And the therapist was quite good in that she realized it wasn't working for me. And then we changed to acceptance and commitment therapy, which I loved as a young person. So that was when I was about 18. I read The Happiness Trap and I was like, thank goodness, I don't have to get rid of my thoughts. I actually just need to let them be there and I can work with the anxiety in that way. So I found that massively helpful. And then later on when I became a psychologist, that's when stuff started getting weird. And I'll say this because I'm going to expose myself as a massive weirdo because the first time I got therapy as a therapist, I was learning about genograms and I gave my therapist like a four-generational genogram, which I realize now is like so weird and none of my clients have ever done that. But I was like, look, I've just learned about genograms. Here's my genogram. And she was like, okay. And she photocopied it. <laughs> and then, like, cool, thanks. Yeah, she, it wasn't even relevant. It like, like she didn't need that in-depth like genogram. um and then and then when I was a provisional psych I used the EAP and I got therapy and I know I was a registered psych and I was getting therapy from a provisional psych and I did the formulation for her so again I went to her and I gave her the formulation I was uh so this will tie into later questions where we're like do you allow yourself to be a client I think the clear answer for me is no (laughs) Yeah, those are some of my experiences of being in therapy. Um, I'm, I, I would say I'm a belligerent client. I, I'm, I'm one of those like folded arms, like I don't have anything to talk about. You sound like a nicer client. Is that right? Oh, God. Oh, it depends on the type of day oh, and okay. like how, how they're receiving. Yeah, I've used EAP bloody countless times. I forgot about that. It's just, yeah, I think it's very hard for me to people to see me struggling with difficult emotions and that's Mm. nothing new so it is hard for me to surrender as well yes yeah it's hard it is hard to surrender I do find that 
Okay. Let's move on to our next question because it's very related. Is that okay? Please. So does your training and knowledge get in the way of successful results or does it improve your chances of achieving your therapy goals? I think it actually helps me. It can help me discern if the practitioner or respect to practitioners out there, if they're just kind of faffing about and asking questions that for my own reason for self-referral are not too relevant. And I think it can be helpful as well because I know to look for the therapeutic alliance. I know what kind of behaviors to look for. But I think, again, because it can be hard for me to surrender and I'm a bit of a control freak, what's me and what's them? So nowadays with being with a therapist, do you find it easy to go into that situation and be like, I'm going to surrender? Or do you feel like it still very much depends on the therapist in front of you? I think it's a lot easier for me now because I know exactly what I would hope to get and I seek out people specifically, hopefully, for that. And I'm trying to also be a good client. I wonder if you find trying to be a good client, is that part of the not being able to surrender, like you were trying too hard? (laughs) (laughs) Don't do this to me. (laughs) Probably, probably. Honestly, yeah, I probably don't want to be a belligerent client. I probably want to be hardworking, probably want to be an easy client for them, even if I might be coming up with complex things. Oh, God, this conversation. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And I mean, this will tie into a later question, which is what do we see as the purpose of getting therapy for a therapist? But it can really be highlighting some things that are blind spots to us as well in our own well-being and our growth. So one of the things that I find with being a client is that I can be very defensive when I first meet a clinician. And I don't mean in a mean way, but I can, I'm very comfortable. So in terms of whether my training and knowledge gets in the way of successful results, I'm very comfortable. I recently said to a new professional, I don't need to talk about this. And I noticed immediately in their reaction that they immediately said, if we're not a good fit, you can go see someone else. So they actually, it actually uh, provoked a response in them. Whereas I wasn't trying to be mean, but they were going down a direction that I didn't need to go down. And so I was just stating my preference that I don't actually need to unpack this. And it was very interesting that way, but I do have more confidence in being able to be like, this is what I would like. And I hope that we can work together on this. I'm seeing somebody now and I actually said to them last session, something along the lines of, I'm really scared to bring this up, but I'm not really sure um, what we're doing in here. And they had a much better reaction. I was really glad for that. So I do feel like my training and knowledge can help me, but it's also just really scary to be a client, I feel. I agree. I think that each time, no matter, I feel like I could be accessing psychology sessions in 20 years time, yeah. have many more years as practicing under my belt, and it will still feel as scary. I'll still feel as naked mm. and vulnerable. It is, it is really scary. Maybe we can talk about that as our next question. What do you see as the, as the purpose of getting therapy as a therapist? Like, why are we putting ourselves through this pain and vulnerability? And <laughs> <laughs> I think there are so many reasons. I think firstly, because we all have a very human experience of being alive in the world and sometimes we'll need external support. So I think it's health permission or health access. I also think it's really important as practitioners for us to go in the hot seat and just remember how difficult it can be sometimes to talk about these things that are really challenging, really painful, and that we'd rather avoid if we can on a nice day. 
And I also think I do learn something that also helps my practice from every counsellor, psychologist, whatever I meet, whatever that might be. So I think it also helps my practice, even if I'm trying to surrender and not be a psychologist as I go in. But I don't think I can ever sever that connection. I agree. I find it hard to sever the connection between professional and personal. And I don't know whether we need to. What do you think about that? I think I used to think we needed to. When I was studying my undergrad and in honours, I thought I had to really be Carly 100% of the time with friends and family, not psychologist. And then when I was a psychologist, I had to be professional and that was it. I couldn't really have parts of me shine through. And now I feel much more comfortable doing that. And I agree, I don't think there can be those um, clean lines in between the different parts of you. I agree. And I really love that. Going back to what do you think is the purpose? It sounds like from your perspective, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're saying it's really good for our own well-being, firstly. Um, and then, oh, actually, I can't remember the second thing that you said. I did have three things. <laughs> oh, yes, it was. It was being in the hot seat and it gives us a really good insight into what our clients might be experiencing, which if you're a relational therapist as well and you use that to understand your clients, it can help us with feeling... I guess a greatest sense of empathy for our clients. Agree. Do you notice that? Yeah, absolutely. I do. So for example, I'm currently seeking some help around making some behavioral changes and I've had clients in the past where I have been frustrated, honestly, with the changes or lack of changes that I have seen from my perspective and actually going through this process of making behavioral changes myself, I have literally taken a step back and been like, wow. And all of my frustration for those clients in the past has melted away because I have thought to myself, this is so hard to make these changes and I'm trying so hard in the background and my therapist might not be seeing everything, but I know that there are changes in my thinking every day and I'm literally having to try so hard to make that. And so, yes, I do find it's massively helpful to get therapy as a therapist, just so that reminding us of how hard change is. I'm really glad you mentioned that because I think as practitioners, we always talk about, you know, you might be the fifth person that they see in the sixth psychologist that all clicks and comes together. The seed is still planted. And so you're talking about that seed kind of growing in its own pace and time in its own way. Yes. And with what you mentioned before about wanting to be the good client, I have felt that pressure and I've wanted the therapist to see like, I am making changes and yeah. I am doing good things, but it's been... It's been humbling to be like, I am making changes and I'm trying to give the therapist a win, but it's, it's just different in the ways that we might anticipate. Changes like changing the way you think about something marginally and that's a win rather than these huge behavioral changes. Yes, I think that all the time as a participant in therapy. And then when I find myself like you, just getting frustrated or feeling stuck in the work, well, I'm like, well, is it the time for this person or what else might be happening that's influencing them? Because I know it's influencing me in my life right now and therapy might be on the back burner this week. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So with us as therapists, we can be so prone to maybe not criticizing, but maybe it is criticizing, negatively reflecting on ourselves when we think about our clients and we're like, they are stuck. Maybe I'm a bad therapist. Maybe I'm not doing this right. Maybe I'm doing that wrong. But if we remember to put ourselves in that hot seat and what that feels for us, we can have a bit more compassion for ourselves. 
Fingers crossed, right? Yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah, ideally. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Zen process we're hoping to tap into there. <laughs> it's okay to be me. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't achieved Zenness yet, but, you know, one, one day. Okay. Let's go on to the other questions. I know this was something big that we wanted to touch on, so let's dive into it. But I'll put this to you as in this way, Carly. There is an idea amongst some in the therapy world that therapists should be infallible. We should have it all together and that if we show any weakness, then we are not good therapists. And that includes going to seek therapy. So this can be a big barrier for therapists. I just want to get your initial thoughts and reactions to that statement. Oh, my God. I feel so upset and mad when I think about that as well. But, yeah, I think... Oh my God, I just wonder how many psychologists, how many thousand psychologists over previous decades have kept this kind of stuff secret and quiet in a field where we talk about human suffering, getting support, acting early, prevention, care, early intervention, all that kind of stuff. And I certainly thought, again, like if thinking of what does a psychologist look like, what do we need to embody, mm. I definitely thought you would have to have it all together and if you didn't, you had to hide what you might um, have experienced or be living with practising. And I think it wasn't necessarily an overt message but I feel like it was implied and I don't really know where. I don't know if that's because like lecturers and stuff were so prim and proper and at least in my experience, they didn't really share much about themselves and that's not a judgment. It just is what it is. Um, yeah, so many different channels I received that message, I think. Me too. That's a really good point that I don't actually know where it came from either, but I've definitely got it in there that I should be different mm. to who I am and that person should be definitely have it all together, never make any mistakes, be infallible. And yeah, getting therapy is is a weakness from that perspective. It sounds like you disagree with that idea. Oh my God, with all my heart. <laughs> yeah, and I hear what you're saying with, I, I do wonder as well how many therapists have not sought their own help for their suffering because of this idea. I think so. I've got friends who are in medicine and have spoken to me about the high rates of suicide in medicine just because of many other factors as well, but also you are seen and told that you are weak if you are like expressing experiencing stress from 24-hour, you know, shifts or something. And it, it's like we have in the caring profession, we lose the care for ourselves. I agree. And that's really, really sad because as you were saying before, we have, we all suffer because we're all humans. We all have challenges. And every day I can guarantee every therapist would be saying something like this to their clients. They'd be like, it's okay to experience this. You're not weak for seeking help. This is a, a strong decision. Early help seeking means that you can get back on track faster. I literally say this, this is stuff that I, I say verbatim, but when it comes to ourselves, I agree there's a disconnect and we're like, but if I choose to seek therapy, I am weak. It's it's really bizarre when you think about it, hey. It's crazy and I use that word very intentionally. Yeah. Like, it, it's not kind. It's not, you know, self-compassion focused. It's not strength-based. All of these things that we try to be to clients and we're, um, we're you know, the duty of care to ourselves, where is that if we talk or judge ourselves in that way? It doesn't really make sense and I think I'm spoiling that will benefit us as a profession because we will show up as more authentic and 
I think ultimately if we can have robust clinicians who are honest about whatever they are going through when and where necessary and also pull them back from work if they need to under ARPA guidelines, I totally understand all that. But yeah, I just think it'll benefit everyone. I agree. Yeah, there seems to be perhaps a fear that if we get therapy, then we're going to blur the lines between everything. Like we're going to bring our difficulties into the therapy sessions and that we won't be able to have those boundaries. But I don't think that's true. What about you? No, I think I think like everything, it exists on a spectrum as can practitioners' mental health. I think there are certainly times where perhaps you need to take a step back and maybe not work with clients for a period of time if your mental health is requiring that kind of level of support. And even that's okay. Again, you're a human in life. Sometimes things happen. But that tabula rasa, like belief or thought or whatever, it's not really, and I don't think it ever was realistic. People would always have maybe death in the family or abuse or, you know, have a car accident or something that would impact you in the therapy room or how you think. So yeah, just, I'm quite confused about the older I get, honestly. Yeah, me too. I do feel confused. Even just having this conversation, it increases my sense of confusion. (laughs) Overall, I I would want to say to listeners, it's definitely okay to get therapy, right? Please get therapy, please. Oh my gosh, enjoy Mm. it. Learn more about yourself, meet new people. Yeah, really embody the message that you tell the world by working in this field. It's it's great. I love it. Yeah. And I have to say with, um, I got some schema therapy earlier this year and I have to say that I really loved being a client with that therapist. We were specifically, and I'll share this with listeners, but one of the effects of being a psychologist for me is that I've become very insular when I talk to people outside of therapy. So my friends and family, and I don't like talking about myself. And the consequence on that for me was that I was unintentionally pushing people away. And so I loved going to therapy because it was just a space where I could feel free to talk about myself. And then we were trying to open me up more to other people so that I felt comfortable talking about myself in the public sphere, which is, seems contradictory because I'm doing this podcast, but I, I promise it's not. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so I, I loved being a client earlier this year. So I have had some really great experiences and it can be lovely to actually have that surrender in in being a client and just this is your time, this is your space to be able to not have to worry about adhering to, I guess, social conventions or needing to take care of the other person in front of you. Oh, that's a really nice Yeah, point. I'd have to say I also have done much nature therapy and I love Oh, that's really cool. That. And oh, I can really surrender to that, no worries. And that is such a special experience. Mm, that's so interesting. Gosh, I'd love to do nature therapy. That sounds so cool. Oh, it's great. It's so what good. kind of stuff have you done in nature therapy? Just go down that for a sec. But is it like walking or is it hiking or is it just sitting in nature? All of the above. Um, it's a lot of symbolism. So finding a patch of grass or a tree that really speaks to you if you're tells your story about being alive or sitting in front of a tree and just connecting with it for an hour. And I know that sounds so hippie, but it's like right up my alley and just like touching it, feeling it, just engaging. That is so cool. I really like that. Thank you, Carly. Another aspect I wanted to talk about. So we've got the idea that uh, fear of weakness is a potential barrier to therapists seeking their own therapy. I just wanted to touch on a few other barriers to seeking help. 
One of them might be cost and another might be time. So Carly, how have you faced these potential barriers and overcome them if they have been? I don't actually think I've overcome the the barrier for cost and time. I think I probably would have really benefited from therapy in my honours year or the 18 months there, but I could not afford it and I certainly did not have the time, which, I mean, do you ever not have the time to prioritise your health? Well, you find out retrospectively that, yeah. So, yeah, now I actively make time and I'm no longer studying so I have the money now but I think yeah I think for students or provisional psychologists or anyone still in higher education trying to get to where they want to be that that is really difficult it is I agree I had similar similarly with when I was a student I could not afford the cost there was no way that I could afford it particularly you did the four plus two right as well and I did the five plus one so you're already paying for supervision at least weekly with that, I could, there is no way that I could afford therapy on top of that. Oh, absolutely not. And then also I think because you're trying, this is just a me thing and I, I don't know if you yeah. resonate with this, but also because I was studying and I felt like I had to train and be really professional. I was like, oh, maybe don't share that I'm struggling right now because if you're struggling already when you're in your four plus two, how are you going to actually be with clients? Well, I mean, of course you're struggling. You're financially stressed. You're under such a huge workload. That makes a lot of sense. That does resonate with me. And I I actually just didn't click into that until now. But of course, it makes sense. You're literally learning how to become a professional in your field and taking those starting steps. And you're under financial strain, as well as a lot of pressure there. It makes sense to be struggling. But like you, I did have the thought that I shouldn't be sharing this and I need to put on this mask and pretend that everything is okay. So there was that weakness barrier still there. But then there was the cost and the time as well. I was also so busy during my studies. What about you? Yeah, and that's that's another thing as well. When I was when I had the rare time off, I just wanted to be with my friends, or I just wanted to be on the couch reading with bag of chips or chocolate or something. You know, I didn't want to be thinking about mental health again. So yeah, I definitely agree with that. That brings me to another question, which is even though we're talking in this episode about therapists getting therapy, what's your perspective on other ways that therapists can achieve self-reflection and personal growth like does it need to be therapy for therapists oh that is I'm just going to answer with a very gray you know it all depends and I'm so sorry that's all right it was a hard question I was glad that it was you answering it and not me (laughs) I think it depends about what's going on for you you know I think there are some things that really do you need some impartial person to say hey from where I'm sitting perhaps these tools will help you and in the moment you might not be able to see that so I think therapy can really help but I also think therapeutic interventions for me like working out yoga hanging out with my animals seeing my friends and family or going to the beach that is all therapeutic even though there might not be a facilitator yeah Mm, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think there is a time and a place where therapy could be the thing that is very helpful. I also f- have found in myself when therapy has been inaccessible to me, I have done a lot of self-help. So I have bought specific books that have taken me through therapies and I've tried to diligently apply them. It has been very difficult, but I have found that that has gotten me through when I actually couldn't afford therapy. I love that point. What book has been your favorite one? What ones have, I've, I've read a lot. 
I would have to <laughs> I would have to have a look. One of my favorite ones is that immediately comes to mind is actually around body image. And like many other women, I did struggle with body image and it's still an ongoing thing. But early on when I was about 18, I was really, really struggling with it. And I read a book called If Not Dieting, Then What? And it was by a doctor called Dr. Rick Korsman. He was a Butterfly Foundation chair. And then a few years later, I actually met him like a big fangirl. And I went to one of his talks and I was like, Dr. Rick, I read your book. And he was really kind and had a talk with me and stuff. But it was all about a very intuitive eating approach and a health at every size approach. And it really resonated with me. And I went through all the activities in there and it really helped when I just did not have the, I was, I was dirt poor and I just couldn't afford anything. I could literally afford that book and that was it. I love that you shared that. I'm going to read the book. I would also second bibliotherapy as the best. I've also read a lot of self-help and also podcasts. There's an yes. amazing amount. There is so much now. This one. Yeah. yeah. But so many amazing podcasts, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy and even short about sleep. I found a DBT um, and me. That yes, yes, yes. I'm a short, sharp, sweet. It's phenomenal. So I think there's also a lot of free resources. You just need to know how to find them and how to discern which ones are helpful and which ones are just kind of like bootstrap theory or prosperity gospel. I completely agree. And that's what I do for my clients these days. I know so many self-help online reputable evidence-based courses that I can recommend. So there are online courses, there's podcasts, and there are so many other things that can help us along our journeys as therapists as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, cool. Okay. The next question I want to ask you, and this is a bit of a dicey one as well, but did your experience of being a client bias you towards not considering different types of therapy? Oh, I would I would actually say not that I consciously am aware of. And I think I I truly enjoy the act of learning and application. So I think that trumps my personal experience and how it coloured it. I think more communication style and things I would say or like therapeutic interweaves I think that has been impacted by people I've worked with I I agree that's that's a really great way of putting that and I love how you said that because I think I feel similarly that I've definitely taken things from therapists that I've met and I've been like that's a genius way of putting that or I love how she said that and how she did this but not so much the orientation has been less important to me in a way That's really interesting. And I I guess I wonder, did anything jump out to you as to what not to do? Oh, yes. And I'll take you back to an experience I had a few years ago, which was I was seeking assistance with a specific problem. And I pretty much went to the therapist and I said to them, I don't know what's happening. What I really needed was an assessment to try and work out this is what's happening. And I actually really needed a label for that. I had no idea. I was very confused and it was impacting a few things in my life. And what happened is that I noticed that the therapist was looking at their nails a lot in sessions. So they're doing this thing where they're like cleaning their nails and and they're doing that a lot. So when you say things not to do, don't check your nails in session and clean them in front of your client. (laughs) Isn't it amazing that that's the thing that jumps out? It seems like such a small thing, but I literally, it was one of the key reasons that I did not go back to that psychologist because they seemed very disinterested. 
and they recommended a book to me, but they didn't seem interested in exploring further and helping me understand my experience. And the nail cleaning was a huge part of that. Oh my God. That, yeah, that will really do my head in. So I can't believe <laughs> Yeah. What about you? <laughs> I think my, it's not even, I have had like overall very positive experiences. These have only been like little niggly things. But I think um, the biggest red flag I had was from my first ever psychologist, a child psychologist who came in with blinders on. She was going through the desert with me. And I do remember this quite vividly. And I wanted her to pick up on some things that I was certainly skirting around and who knows if she was picking up on them, blah, 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 blah. Mm. But she came in thinking it was one thing and everything I would say, she would just return back to that. And I was just, I just felt very, what's the point? This has just been stressful. I haven't really got anything valuable back. I don't see the point. So I try now to ask clients, is there anything that you'd like to tell me that maybe I don't understand or that I haven't asked you? Do you think there's anything that you would like to share? And I always, I try to check in very frequently because I know that there's a lot that can go unsaid and I never want to assume I can avoid it. Wow. That's very powerful. And I'm glad that you've taken that away from therapy. It's really prompted me to reflect back on my experience again and think that I also do the same thing. I try not to assume. It's one of the things that I tell clients when they first come to see me. Actually, I've got my little spiel that I give to clients. And in one of the things I say that I don't like having a quick a cookie cutter approach to people. I genuinely want to understand you and your perspective and how you view the world. And so I do check in with you a lot. Have I got that right? Is there another way that I could look at this? Is there something that's going unsaid? And that's actually been directly informed from my own therapy experiences as well. I love that. I felt so nice and held when you said oh, that. I was like, oh, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Carly, for the feedback. That's good. I hope my clients feel like that too. <laughs> I imagine they do. <laughs> There was a pointed reason why I did ask you the question beforehand, because I did want to talk with you about your hypnotherapy experience. So I can't think of a clever way to ask it. So I'm just going to ask it directly (laughs) because you mentioned to me off air that you weren't, you were unsure about hypnotherapy, but you went into it and you got a completely different idea about it. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah. Oh my gosh. This is really funny. I was probably about 21 and my mum was seeing this incredible hypnotherapist who was doing a lot of work with us um, through Berry Street. He, he's great, so great. Um, and she came home one day and she said, Carly, I just had hypnotherapy and wow. And I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, mum. You know, keep keep talking whatever you're talking about. And she kept, for about 12 months, she was like, you should try this. I think it would be really helpful for you. And I was like, whatever, mum. This is, you know, just kind of conspirituality, hippie work. I didn't believe in it I was like you know if it helps you that's great but if I feel like this is astrology and then I had a, quite a challenge in year and I just thought what have I got to lose whatever you know I like um the counselor Nigel love him so again what have I got to lose and he was really excited so I went to a session and I just thought this might be a waste of my time but whatever what else was I doing today and the process of hypnotherapy is really funny because they count you down to get into a different state of consciousness and I remember walking him and I was laughing as he was counting down I was like oh this is not going to work this is not going to work and then it hit one and it was just like I was lucid dreaming and it was such a phenomenal session there was like a roller coaster of emotions I was laughing I was sobbing I was feeling very joyful and happy and at the end of it I was spent and I got home and I was like mom I'm a convert I love hypnotherapy (laughs) 
<laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. That's so amazing. I love how you were so open to having your mind changed as well. Yeah, I guess a part of me wanted to have a, a positive experience. And again, I think because I trusted Nigel so much and he really tried to support me and my family, I just thought, you know, again, it'll be it'll be helpful whatever comes out of it. But it was very profound and I went back for another four sessions and it was very helpful. That is so cool. I'm really pleased for you that it was so beneficial for you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad to hear that. That's fantastic. And I mean, that can be one of the things that is a barrier for even therapists to get help. They might be like, this thing won't help me. Like it sounds too hippy dippy. But actually when we look at hypnotherapy, it is an evidence-based intervention. It does have lots of research behind it. It's good for me to know now, but yes. you know, at the, at the time, I was I like, didn't, this uh, is yeah. Just yeah, 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 totally. I had a a client a few years ago bring me a hypnotherapy CD, and they were like, "Can you just tell me whether this is okay or not?" And I knew nothing about hypnotherapy, so I had to do a deep dive into it. And then I come back to the next session, and I'm like, "It's okay," like because <laughs> I just had no clue. But there is a wide spectrum. Like there are people who might say. Uh, just read a script and they have no idea how to do the things around to keep you safe. But it sounds like your therapist, Nigel, was the opposite of that. Yes, he had 20 years under his belt of um, providing clinical hypnotherapy and, you know, I was wrapped in a blanket, you know, it was it was nice lighting and I just felt whatever whatever imagery came through my mind, I felt safe passing that on to him. That's lovely. And things from when I was eight years old, he was like, wait, what? you've never shared that with me before. What are you talking about? And I was like, "Eh, that's really important. Can we talk about it now? (laughs) Oh, wow. Fantastic. That is so cool. And it's a good example of how surrendering and therapy can lead you to new insights and opportunities to learn about yourself and grow. Yes. You're like, bloody hell it did. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Uh, Next question. I'm interested with the EMDR. Again, I can't, I can't think of a clever way to ask this, but how does your experience of EMDR, how does that influence the way that you practice? Because I understand that you've done EMDR. Did you want to use EMDR before you had it yourself or was it directly informed from actually being a client and you were like, yes, this is it? Mm, good question. I think I, like many people, um, read The Body Keeps the School when I was in my undergrad and I was like, yes. oh, cool, this will be really helpful for me and for many people as well. And I I heard about EMDR, but I didn't understand how widely it was used in Australia at the time, so I didn't probably think it was accessible. I didn't really think about it. And I think I was also still just trying to get to the next degree or to the registration to really think about what I would use. And then I used it and what, well, it was used on me and I just thought, wow, I could have used this 15 years ago, would have changed my life then, it's changed my life now. I would love to use this for people when and where appropriate. I, yeah, I can't speak more highly of my personal experience from it and, yeah, I find it very, very powerful. That's amazing. And do you find that, I guess earlier we were talking about the therapist self and personal self, do you find that when you're delivering EMDR that you're able to be there for the client and then separate that out from your own experiences of undergoing EMDR? Or do you feel like they inform each other? I feel like they inform each other and I feel like when we're 
we're providing informed consent, I sometimes find it helpful to say, look, many people might experience full body sweats. They might cry. Maybe nothing happens during a processing session. It can feel very intense. It can also feel like nothing. And then you might have crazy dreams because I feel if people kind of know what to expect, then they'll be able to keep surrendering to the experience. So I, and yeah, I don't know if I, if, I think I'm always blended, but I am mindful of obviously when to be professional. I'm never sharing personal things, but I think the small personal part of me jumps in like jumps for joy after a session or when they come back and they say that was phenomenal. I'm like, yes. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I hear what you were saying and I feel the same way. It's like you're always professional and the client's time is their time. And you're never non-purposefully sharing personal experiences. But I guess having gone through EMDR yourself, it sounds like you are really excited when they do experience a win. I'm genuinely so excited or when they start to talk about themselves in a really strength-based, compassionate way, like, oh, why have I been thinking like that for 20 years? I don't know. How good that your brain wants to help you. Yeah. Yeah. No, fantastic. Now that's amazing. I really love this, how we're crossing over with therapy ourselves and then using that in our professional space. Because again, there is like, I don't know where it's come from, but I just feel like there's this dominant narrative that we shouldn't be using our lived experiences to inform our professional selves. And but we're just, we're talking directly about how it's so helpful. It's, it just boggles my mind. I just, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a question in there, but yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. I think it's also interesting though, if you look at um, media portrayals of mental health professionals, like psychologists and psychiatrists and stuff, they're always so well put together. And if they do fall apart, they're hitting the line and it's after, it's after shift and that's as bad as it gets, mm. right? It's still very controlled. I'd like to see more media representation of mental health professionals accessing mental health support. And I'm sorry to like go off on a tangent, but that's no, why please I really do. like the book. Um, maybe you should talk to someone. Yeah, I haven't read Gromig. that. Have you read it? Oh, my God. Is it good? It. Okay, I'll read it. Okay. Yeah, please. Very, very on, on point. I'll link it in the show notes. I have heard <laughs> of it. I have heard that it's amazing. Okay, I'll read that. Well, Carly, I wanted to turn to something a little bit different in the practical aspects of getting therapy as a therapist. I got a few questions around this, like, what do you look for in a therapist? What was it like for you to get a mental health care plan? Do you disclose to your GP that you're a psychologist? And how do you seek out someone for what you're going through with as a therapist? Are you ready to have a look at these topics? Oh, yeah. I love this question. I actually love my GP. He's phenomenal. I've been with him for like 10 years. And the other day I was like, you're my GP. Do you know that, right? And he was like, yeah, I know that. And I was like, all right, cool. That's so sweet. He knew when I was starting to become a psychologist. So each time I progressed in the next stage, I told him whenever I was having just like a blood test or a checkup or whatever. And he knows about my, A, my mental health history anyway. So it's, it's it, I feel okay about it. And now as a psychologist, I feel very, very confident and very fine. I'm like, hey, I need a mental health care plan. Can you please do this for me? These are my symptoms. This is the one I want to get support for. I can find someone by myself. So it's a very well-oiled machine, whereas I think if I was starting afresh with a new GP, I might be a bit nervous about them potentially judging me. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds really nice. I really like that you have that relationship with your GP. So he knows that you or she, they know that you are a psychologist and you don't feel that they treat you any differently because of that? I actually feel like he talks to me 
a more um, we talk shop a little bit, which is really nice as well. Which is yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really cool. So it sounds like you feel completely comfortable in that professional relationship. Yeah, very much so. That is lovely. Yeah, I I have had a few different experiences with that. So once when I told a GP that I was a psychologist, they immediately were like, oh, great, do you need new referrals? Whereas I wanted to be a patient rather than be there to solicit referrals. And then Mm. they said to me, do you want me to put it on your file? And I actually said, no, I don't want you to put psychologist on my file because I think from that experience, I was a little bit afraid. And I have had another GP treat me a little bit differently when they've discovered that I was a psychologist. And then I actually had another one as well. And they, and they did the whole, so you're a clinical psychologist. And I was like, no, I'm not a clinical psychologist. And then he was like, but they're the same things. And I'm like, actually, no. And then I was like, okay, I don't want to get into these politics with you. Um, <laughs> but I was just like, no, no, no. It's just, it just a little bit distracting, I guess. So these days I actually opt to not do it. And I, I guess it's, I would like to find a GP that I feel comfortable with. I have moved around in the past few years. So I don't have a GP that I've had a long-term relationship with. That's interesting because I've also moved around a lot, but I just feel good with this doctor. Like I, I would, if I needed to, when I'd move, I'd go and just see like a random GP for whatever I needed. And yeah, I just always return back to him. And I could, and I think because I had previous like crappy experiences with GPs who now that I am in the field, I understand it probably time poor, probably maybe didn't have yeah. enough training, whatever. But at the time, I was like, what was the point of that? And I remember reporting symptoms of like chronic insomnia for months and, you know, a whole host of other things that many mental health professionals would say, this is very clearly one thing. And he wanted to write me a script for um, anti-anxiety meds. And I was just like, that's not going to treat the core thing. And I felt like very, very awfully put about that. For you, even though you've moved around a lot, you have actually stuck with the same GP. Yeah, yeah. That's really cool. I'll continue, yeah. Yeah. So I wonder what we could recommend to listeners around that. So should they feel comfortable telling their GP? I guess it's one of these, it depends, right? Yeah. Oh, damn it. (laughs) Yeah, it always is because we could say one thing, but that might place somebody else in an unsafe situation if they don't have that relationship with their GP. But I guess maybe the takeaway is that we should feel able to say our profession to our GP, but we don't necessarily have to if we don't wish to. Would, would that sound about right to you? I think so. Like I many times when I just see one of the random GPs for something, I'd just say something like I'm a student or I'm like I'm, I'm a, an accountant or something. I would just like tell a fib because I didn't want to get into the whole thing Yeah. Or, or feel judged for maybe having like a blip in my mental health when I should and, you know, my own judgment be mm. all over that. So I think, yeah, it really depends. Like if it feels okay in the moment, then you want to go right ahead. And if not, it's up to you. Yeah. And let's just dispel a myth, perhaps. I think this is a pervasive one, but we don't get in trouble from APRA if we have a mental health care plan, right? I thought we did when I was Oh, did you? I just, I don't know. I thought that they'd be like Well, I guess it is a big myth. I think a lot of people do. I mean, that's why I said it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I thought the opera gods would come down and be like, you can never be a psychologist. I'm glad we're talking about this then. Yeah. 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 Because do you you know differently now? Well, yeah. But, you know, for like three years, I was like, just keep keep it under the light. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I can say this definitively, but you will not get in trouble from opera if you have a mental health care plan. No. Full stop. not. Full stop. I think you just need to be mindful and just be honest with yourself. If your mental health is at the stage where it's looking like you need to stop practicing or whatever, just be mindful of that and 
you know, seek the appropriate information from those who know and share before someone reports you. And I don't say that to be frightening. It's never happened to me. It's not happened to anyone that I know. Never happened. Yeah, same. Yeah. But I also want to just urge people just just to be mindful. Yes, I would say being mindful of it and have honest and frank discussions with your healthcare provider around yeah. that. So if you are concerned that your mental health is impairing your um, capabilities as a psychological professional, then have a frank and honest discussion about the GP with that and what the implications are of the actions that you might be taking. That's right, because it won't be a situation that you can never practice again, unless obviously you do something that leaves you stripped of your license sorry I feel like this is all a bit of an it depends thing yeah it is but yeah but don't 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 be frightened be honest it just might mean that you take a break yes yeah yeah but you're go I was gonna say and (laughs) and the advice that we always give to listeners around issues that you are unsure about is go seek consultation with a senior colleague or supervisor so it'll the reason why we say it depends is because it really does depend but we know like we said before, full stop, you can't get in trouble with ARPA just from getting a mental health treatment plan. That in no. itself does not mean that you're an impaired practitioner. But no. if you are unsure about your mental health, it's really important not to stay silent and then go speak to someone who can help. That's right. I've got um, friends and peers who have had babies, who have had postnatal depression, and they've been able and fit to practice and they've not gotten in trouble. People have known, they've been quite open about it. Um, so it's, it's definitely not you know, if if you have a bad mental health week or a day that the sky's going to fall, it's certainly not like that. Yeah, great. Thank you, Carly. <laughs> I, I, I do. It is important to talk about, even though it is a bit of like a frightening subject, it's really mm. important because that's what's going on in the background here that we don't talk about and people are going to walk away from the episode being like, okay, so it's good to get a therapist, but I'm not going to do it because I'm going to get trouble from ARPA from my mental health plan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm glad that we have addressed this. The other thing that I wanted to address practically is when you seek out a therapist, just do you seek out somebody who you as far away from your community as possible, like interstate, or are you willing to seek a therapist closer that you might be in the same circles? What's your oh, thoughts? Yeah, I'm willing to seek anyone really. Happy to see people in my community. Um, happy to see whoever will take me. I generally typically go for modality over anything else Um, but then sometimes I think oh it might be helpful for me to be challenged and see like a male psychologist and see someone who I don't want to see because maybe then I'll learn more yeah yeah no cool so you're not concerned that you might see the psychologist in social circles or conferences or online or anything no um because uh when I meet with them, I'll just say, hey, like this the spiel I give to clients. If I see you out, do you want me to like, you know, ignore you? Do you want me to give you a smile and wave? Do you want me just to run in the other direction? What would make you feel comfortable? I always pop that in my initial contact email or have a chat over the phone and just see what their comfortability is because I'm I don't really mind. That sounds awesome. I think you are more, uh, you feel more safe than me. I feel like an anxious little gremlin almost because I deliberately for my last therapist, I deliberately sought somebody out who lived like four hours away from me. So I'd never run into them because even though I know rationally, of course, they're going to keep everything confidential. They're a professional. And it's not going to impact their interactions with me. I think my emotional brain won that tussle and it was like, oh, but it's really scary. <laughs> but sometimes if it's going to make you feel safer in therapy, listen to the emotional brain. Yeah. So then you just don't have that resistance. 
Exactly. I found that that worked for me, but I feel in the future I'm able to go to therapists, but I will be looking for somebody who has the modality that they think they can help me with. So one Mm. of my current specifications, I don't know if it's good or not, but I really don't want to be a test case for a therapist. So one of my things that I have is I really want to, if I see a psychologist, I want to know that they've worked with my presentation in the past. Mm. Um, And that's currently my only criteria. I love that. And I didn't even think of that or asking that until you said that, but that's a really helpful question. Yeah. 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 Because yeah, I feel like I need to trust that they, sometimes for the things that I seek help with, I wonder if I can be helped. So for me, it's really important to know that they have worked with that presentation before. And again, and it puts me in my client's shoes. Like I imagine my clients are thinking the exact same thing. Absolutely. I get asked that question all the time. And I think in future, Um, whenever and whomever I seek support from next, I will definitely ask that because I think it is really important. Yeah, no, thank you. I don't think I have any other practical questions that I wanted to address on this episode. I feel like this has been really helpful and I'm so glad to have had your experiences, Carly. I did want to ask you, is there anything that we haven't given a voice to that you think it's really important for the listeners to be aware of on the topic of therapists getting therapy? I, two things actually, I think um, just check and be mindful and be curious about when your own stigma comes up. If a colleague or someone in mental health shares that they're um, getting support from a mental health clinician, just, oh, where did that come from? When, when did I start to internalize that message? Because, you know, like you and I, you might not know. Secondly, I think, um, you know, you and I were talking off air about our history of working in lived experience roles. I would love for the future of psychology to champion lived experience psychologists a bit more. What that would look like, I don't know, but I think it would be really powerful for clients, for peers. Yeah, I I would like to see that one day. I would love to see that too. And thank you for raising that as well. I I also don't know what it would look like, but I do know perhaps this was your experience or perhaps different. But when I was doing my lived experience stuff, I had to hide it deliberately from my supervisors. I was doing my PhD at the time and I didn't tell anybody else about it. I was doing it in secret. I was essentially moonlighting as a lived experience speaker. (laughs) 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 And it's because I did did face explicit judgment. So things Mm. were said to me that were that were quite mean actually and yeah it's so I felt that I needed to do that and I would hope in the future that future clinicians wouldn't have to feel that need to hide um because the work that I was doing it was it was really good like I'm proud of that work that I went out to schools I've done over 100 talks at schools where I've educated about mental health and used my lived experience as part of that I love that so much and but also what a horrible experience to feel like you need to moonlight and then have that discrimination. I was nervous to share my lived experience roles on my LinkedIn because I thought, well, what if my supervisor sees it? What if like wow. I can see it? What if, what if people judge me for it? And I just think, well, what if, you know, now I don't really care um, because I like you, I, I did a lot of really amazing things in my roles. I loved it. I think yeah. that they're so powerful. If you look at the research base for the lived experience so roles, yes, yes. Mm. So now I'm like, whatever. Yeah, no, me too. I am like, whatever, but mm. perhaps that it does reflect, I feel like a privileged position to be able to be like, whatever. Yeah. No, true. And I think also as well, there's much to be said about lived experience and then living experience. My friend, yes. she works um, for homelessness 
program and she was saying that they've employed someone who's actually also actively homeless at this point wow, in time. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, things change, times change. So, yes, I had a lived experience of many different things, but where I am right now, very different. I have a feeling that Carly, friend of the podcast, will have to come back and be another friend of the podcast unpacking this subject further. (laughs) But I think it's super important and I hope that this conversation that we've had today can open it up for any listeners at home who feel that they are weak or stupid or or unacceptable clinicians because they go seek therapy. Carly, you know, go get therapy. It's great. Yep, I'll go again in my life. Can't wait. Uh, Yep, I will go again. (laughs) And lots of us do. So hopefully this helps you in being able to consider therapy in the future and know that you're still a good therapist if you go seek therapy. That's right. Probably a better therapist for doing so. I would agree. Okay. Um, Thank you, Carly, so much for being on this episode. And thank you, listeners. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mental Work the podcast for early career psychologists. I could use some help getting the word out about this podcast. If you wouldn't mind, take a moment and give me a review on iTunes or Spotify or let someone know about the show. Thanks for listening. Have a good one and see you next time.